COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Our goal is to protect the lives and livelihoods of Australians. We have breaking news on a corona scare. The panic buying, self-isolating on a statewide level. Stop it. It's Friday 8th of May. Hi and welcome to Coronavirus Watch. Natalie Bongiolo and Ben O'Shea joining you for this week's weekly update on all things COVID-19 locally, nationally and across the globe. Ben, let's start with the number of cases here in WA this week. Yeah, our amazing run of eight days without a new case of COVID-19 has come to an end. There was a new case reported today over the last 24 hours. Uh, It was a 29-year-old man who had recently returned from overseas. He had been in uh, quarantine at a Perth Hotel since his arrival and uh, Mark McGowan has been speaking and Roger Cook, the health minister, has been speaking over the past week or so that as uh, Australians and West Aussies come back from overseas, he was expecting that the number of cases in WA will go up. The fact that it's only gone up one in the past nine days is really amazing. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was to be expected when you have hundreds of people returning from overseas and we did have such an incredible streak of zero cases. What about nationally? And nationally, it went up about 120 uh, cases across the week uh, and there were two more deaths in Australia uh, over the last seven days. It brought the national total up to 6,912 confirmed cases. And if we're looking over the last 24 hours, if we do a bit of a whip around the states, in Victoria where they're, they're having a bit of a, an issue at the moment, there was 13 new cases in Victoria, mm. four new cases in New South Wales. Uh, in South Australia, there was just one new case and it was a weird one. It was a man in his 70s who tested positive six weeks after returning from the UK. So nobody really thought that was possible. Uh, So we're not entirely sure what's happening there. In Tassie, there was another new case. uh, But in Queensland, the ACT and the Northern Territory, no new cases over the past 24 hours. Yeah, that is really perplexing with that fellow in his 70s. And I know some people have raised the question of the 14-day quarantine period because um, in Italy, where the word quarantine comes from, it means 40 not 14. <laughs> so it is an interesting question. How long can you show the symptoms? Yeah, maybe those ancient Romans are onto something. <laughs> maybe. Uh, how are things looking internationally? Internationally, not great. Uh, currently, the number of confirmed cases globally is uh, 3.85 million. Uh, and in the last few days, uh, it's gone from uh, 75,000 new cases a day up to 92,000 cases over the past 24 hours. And that's the biggest 24-hour increase in the past two weeks. So mm-hmm. trending in the wrong direction. And uh, there's now t- 269,000 deaths from COVID-19 globally. Yeah, those figures are still just staggering and it's still hard to believe that it's actually happening. Yeah, and the, and the rate of infection in different countries changes. We've talked about this before. Uh, Russia at the moment is a real hotspot. They're adding more than 10,000 new cases a day. Same with Brazil, which is the, the worst in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, and uh, South American nations like uh, Ecuador and Peru also seem to be fighting a losing battle. And in Africa, countries like Nigeria and the Sudan are seeing a really rapid growth rate at the moment. So as they struggle to deal with this. Yeah, and this was predicted by the um, health authorities around the world that we were going to see this happening at the countries in the countries we hadn't heard from yet. Uh, back here at home, of course, we're doing very, very well. And, and Premier Mark McGowan said today in his press conference that we are so well ahead of the rest of the country. We're in this uh, very exclusive group, including Northern Territory and South Australia, where we have 
you know, managed to stop the virus here in its tracks. And obviously, people are feeling a little bit more confident. Uh, you know, we know that 75% of kids have gone back to school. And if you compare that to what the ordinary rate is, which is 85 to 95%, we're nearly there. So people are obviously feeling safe and protected and sending the kids back. Um, and he really said that, you know, around the world, people are looking at Perth and Western Australia and other governments are looking at us to see how far we've come and how we've done this. The United States has 50 states and one national government and each and every one of them is doing the opposite. And there is no cooperation nationally with their states. And the outcome is there. What, 70,000 people dead now and climbing by thousands every day. In the Australian context, um, six states, two territories, one Commonwealth government, and we've worked cooperatively. Uh, we've come up with national solutions, and there might be regional variations based upon um, uh, different rates of spread, but it's worked marvellously well, and Australia has been a standout for the world. Uh, I reckon there's very few countries around the world have got a record like ours, probably none, and uh, they're all looking at us as to how did Australia do it so well? And I think one of the things we did so well was cooperation. I mean, I've worked very cooperatively with the Prime Minister. Uh, I've made a point of that. Don't be political, don't be partisan, just solve the problem. That's what we had to do the whole way along. And so last two months or two and a half months, however long it is, it feels like two years uh, that this has been going on, um, I think we've worked very well together and we've had good outcomes. But at the same time, he still said, you know, we, we have to be careful because we do not want a second wave. And of course, this was the problem with the Spanish flu, that this did kill more people in the second wave than the first. And, and he went on from that to say, therefore, we won't be opening our borders no matter what pressure the AFL put on us. Yeah, yeah. He, he said that uh, he didn't have a lot of, co- the WA government didn't have a lot of confidence in the AFL's ability to stop the spread of the coronavirus. They've got a plan that they're working on uh, to stage a season at some point and what that exactly looks like is still being worked out but it's very clear that uh, from a state government perspective in Western Australia, they're not that interested in giving exemptions to footy players. They're not that ex- interested in letting them uh, sort of come in and out of our hard border closure. Uh, so, yeah, McGowan was was quite uh, quite overt in his, in saying that, um, you know, we weren't about to be bullied by the AFL. Uh, and he also said that it might have been a little bit unfair on the Eagles and Dockers uh, because the AFL didn't want to have a hub here in Western Australia because they didn't want to play by our strict rules, which means that uh, the Eagles and the Dockers uh, might have to relocate to the East Coast. Uh, they won't get home games. Uh, they'll have to live over there away from family and friends for who knows how many weeks at a time and uh, I think he was right to point out that it's a little bit unfair. Yeah that's right. The Eagles and the Dockers have been the victims in this. They've been so cooperative and so keen to work with governments to get a resolution. They haven't complained. Uh, They've just wanted to play football within health guidelines. Uh, but uh, it appears in relation to the hub arrangement that it was Eastern States clubs that didn't want to come to Western Australia. Yet the AFL says the West Australian teams can go to the East. doesn't seem to me to be particularly fair or reasonable, this approach. And so uh, the Eagles and Dockers have been uh, fantastic. I expect the meeting was very um, uh, cooperative and reasonable. Uh, but we're not going to compromise uh, the health of West Australians just to meet the needs or to... Um, to satisfy the AFL hierarchy. That's not going to happen. Here at home, of course, we are looking at the 
regional borders and fingers crossed they will be coming down sometime in the foreseeable future. Yeah, that foreseeable future might even be Sunday. When the Premier speaks, he's going to outline his roadmap uh, to recovery and reopening the Western Australian economy. And some of that will include uh, regional tourism uh, with a hard border closure with the East likely to remain in place for some time. Intrastate travel is uh, being looked at very closely. Uh, The Northwest is likely to remain off limits for some time because of the sensitivity around Aboriginal communities uh, and COVID-19. But certainly travel from Perth to the southwest and the Margaret River, those, those tourism areas that we love, and even the Wheatbelt could open up sooner rather than later and perhaps even in time for the winter school holidays. Yeah, well, wouldn't that be a treat? Um, all those families that will be able to see their loved ones who live in other parts of Western Australia who they've not been able to see for such a long time. Well, over in Canberra, the National Cabinet met today and Prime Minister Scott Morrison fronted the packed press gallery with his doona again. These are cautious first steps, but important first steps. You know, we could, you can stay under, under the doona forever and you'll, you know, you'll, you'll never face any danger. Um, but uh, we've got to get out from under the doona. Uh, at some time, and if not now, then when? <laughs> yeah, it's, I love the Duna. I love uh, Scott Morrison's Duna metaphor. is one of my favourite things of this whole uh, saga. Uh, it's interesting. He talked about the Duna uh, as a way to introduce the three-step plan that the state, the federal government, has come up with uh, to guide the states as they move towards reopening their economies. Uh, and he he said that it was only possible thanks to the health evidence that they'd been given the health advice uh, and also because of testing, tracing and trapping capabilities. That's uh, increasing the amount of testing that we're doing to keep an eye on the community spread of the virus, the tracing people who have had it to ensure that we know where it's spreading uh, and then trapping any outbreak. There was a time a few weeks ago where Australia probably didn't have the uh, protocols and capabilities to stop uh, an outbreak that occurred uh, spontaneously. The situation in Tasmania, I think, was uh, an eye-opener for everybody and it created an yep. opportunity to really improve those capabilities, which now we have seen, and it's it's enabled this three-step process to be implemented. And uh, step one is going to be the increasing of gatherings up to 10 people. So it means you can have five guests uh, in your home now uh, and you can still work from home if it's suitable for workers and employers. Uh, playgrounds will be open, pools will be open, and retail and small cafes uh, will be allowed to open again. Uh, obviously, keeping a, a very strict uh, guidelines on how many people they have in the premises and also uh, in taking into account that they've got a COVID-19 uh, plan in place to ensure that everybody's safe. Uh, funerals uh, will be increased to up to 30 people as well. And then uh, we'll, we'll take it from there step two. Yeah, so step two was increasing those gatherings up to 20 people and that would include places like cinemas and galleries and also um, beauty parlours, He, I think he called it beauty classes and then of course bar classes. Bar, bar classes, Scott Morrison's <laughs> favourite. We all know he loves a bar. He loves a bar class. Bar, eh? <laughs> I think he's actually taken up bar which is very interesting. <laughs> he's probably got a free membership somewhere I think after the first time he tried to pronounce it. <laughs> That's right and uh, gyms but of course there are still strict COVID um, plans and still social distancing in various places. Community sport, I don't know what that meant for that. 
Yeah, it, they were asked afterwards uh, if community sport would be included in one of these steps and uh, Scott Morrison and Brendan Murphy said uh, step one and step two, community sport can start happening depending on the amount of people allowed to gather. But this is where I think it'll become uh, a bit of a grey area because if you're talking about gatherings of up to 20 people, uh, you know, a hockey team has 11, so there's 22 on the field. Um, a soccer, 22 on the field. Footy, well, that's 18 aside, so that's more than that's more than 20 people. And if you look at, say, uh, Junior Netball and the Matthews Netball Centre here, on a Saturday morning, there are thousands of people yeah. that pack into a very small area. So how community sport uh, restarts, I think, is a bit of a question mark at the moment. Um, but uh, as with all of these steps, I think it's going to be a sort of a you know trial and error process. When we get to step three, that'll be gatherings of up to 100 people. Uh, by that stage, most workers will be back in their offices or places of work. Um, uh, Scott Morrison said that step three might include some interstate travel uh, and pubs and clubs could possibly reopen, working towards you know July having completed all of these steps. But he cautioned that uh, it would be up to individual states to proceed at their own pace. Uh, this was federal government advice and it was based on uh, the what they'd been hearing from the states, what the individual states thought would, would be safe. Yes. But again, he said that you know, just because they've announced these three steps, don't put any expectations on the timelines around them and don't put any expectations if your particular state is going to be introducing them because it's a matter for individual states depending on what their individual situations are. Uh, he said that WA, uh, the Northern Territory and South Australia were doing very well. The situation was a little bit different in New South Wales and Victoria. Uh, and so I would say, uh, I would suspect that um, Western Australia will progress through these steps faster, mm-hmm. hopefully, fingers crossed, because obviously if there's if there's outbreaks, if there's a, a step backwards in terms of the amount of new cases that we're seeing, uh, then that could, that could be a real spanner in the works. But things are going so well in Western Australia, you'd have to have a bit of confidence. Yeah, and of course we already are through some of step one in that we can have 10 people at our places at the moment, which other places in Australia are unable to do that. So uh, that will be very interesting to see just at what speed the different states move through this. Um, they also obviously said, you know, a lot of this will still depend on on whether we do the right thing. And one of those things that we need to do right is to download the app. So we're at 5.3 million people have downloaded the app. Uh, Professor Murphy said today that is still not enough. We need people to do more. Uh, That's one of the the reasons the plan can move forward. One of the other reasons, as you mentioned, is the testing. So in terms of the testing at the moment, they're at 730,000 tests, which is a lot of tests. And of course, it is making it so much easier for them to be able to then look at tracing through the testing as well. Yeah, well, that's going to be uh, of critical importance going forward into this next phase of the coronavirus in Australia. Uh, we've done really well so far flattening the curve, but now as we start to restart the economy, it's inevitable. I think everybody understands that it is inevitable that there will be eventually a spike in cases uh, as you open up borders. Uh, but the, the key thing here is being able to control those outbreaks and to know exactly the extent of the outbreak, which is where the app comes in. Mm. Um, we know there's a lot of dis- discussion around uh, privacy and security of the app. There was a security uh, issue that was raised um, because Singapore uses a similar app. Um, They fixed the problem there. Australia hasn't taken action thus far to fix the same problem here. Uh, It was an issue of uh, people continuing to be tracked for a number of days um, uh, without their knowledge afterwards. Uh, And so... 
it's still some bugs in it, I think, but the benefits far outweigh, I think, the negatives at this point. Yeah, definitely. And Professor Murphy was also um, saying today in the press conference that it is absolutely super important that people don't go to work or go out if they have colds and snivels and a cough or a sore throat or anything like that. He said, this is really, really important because times have changed. You know, we don't soldier on anymore and go to work. If you have a problem, any respiratory issue at all, you need to stay home. So... uh, it just well, it reminded me of that. Listening to him today, it reminded me of that old Codrell ad uh, yes. with the soldier on, and it's it, it, that's how it used to be, you know. And not just not just we're talking about back in the uh, the nineties or eighties or whenever that ad was. It's like last year that was the case. If you had a bit of a sniffle, you would probably pop a Codrell and and soldier on and go to work. And let's have a listen to that ad now. It hasn't aged well, Nat. Cold, cold, cold. and there's people depending on you. Soldier on. I mean, you listen to that now and, and this is an entirely new ad campaign that they're going to have yeah, to create. Yeah, yeah, Don't yeah. soldier on, stay home. Yeah, stay home. <laughs> like if you want to reduce your, the severity of your symptoms, pop a codril by all means. Just don't leave the house after you do. I think that's what you have to do. And and Brennan Murphy also said the, about the importance of uh, social distancing. Even though we're seeing with these three steps that some of the restrictions are being eased, it's only going to work if people continue to do things like social distancing, if people continue to wash their hands hands and show good hygiene, you know, don't cough into your hand and then go around touching everything. Yep. <laughs> Little things like that will make such a big difference in in how this uh, situation unfolds over the next few months. Yeah, and I think it, it probably will change our lives forever. We'll now f- always be more conscious of these things about making sure that we're washing our hands and, and you know, will the handshake ever come back? Will the yeah. kiss on the cheek when you see someone ever come back? At this stage, it doesn't seem like it will for a very, very long time to come. And the and the benefits are already being seen in terms of the incident rates of the seasonal flu, like record low uh, numbers of people reporting with seasonal flu in the, the first uh, few weeks of what would normally be the flu season. And that is probably because people are, or they're staying closer to home, they're not in the workplace, they're also practicing better hygiene. Uh, and so there will be some, some positive spill-on effects because of that. But you have to remember always that there's no vaccine for COVID-19. There's no on the horizon and so this this uh, virus will be with us for a while mm. and so everybody uh, has to take steps to protect themselves from it doesn't mean turning off your life um, and increasingly we'll be starting to uh, return to a, a more normalcy in our everyday lives but you know s- stick to the the guidelines as far as hygiene and uh, and those sort of things are concerned and it's going to be much better for everybody absolutely one thing that has eased off is the uh, panic buying which has now almost come back to normal and Woolies have announced that they're going to now um, not keep the product restrictions so you can buy anything you want now and they're still on track to sell a lot of toilet rolls though. Yeah, but <laughs> amazingly they've they sold less toilet rolls in the past week than they did in the, the, the corresponding week in the previous year. So so this week they said that they, they're going to sell between 9 million and 9.5 million toilet rolls. Seems like a lot but uh, that's so 
much less than what it was during the peak panic buying period uh, in mid-March when they were selling 39.7 million toilet rolls a week, which is staggering. Uh, and even at this time last year, they sold 11 million toilet rolls. So we're a little bit down on where we were last year. <laughs> I think that's probably because there are some people out there that have whole garden sheds full of toilet paper <laughs> that they're trying to figure out how to get to get through. Um, so yeah, that's a positive. And the changed hours are going to go back to normal as well. So there won't be that sort of early morning senior citizen period. Uh, and so I guess it's another sign that things are slowly starting to return to normal. Yeah, and people can just slowly work through their breach cupboards and start using up all those uh, toilet rolls and cans of baked beans that they bought and and flour and yeah, that's right. <laughs> packet cake. The, the only thing's not returning to normal is uh, AFL footy training. Um, <laughs> but so maybe the message hasn't got to the Adelaide Crows yet after they were busted <laughs> this week. Now we mentioned that around the world the numbers are not looking good, and that is still the case in the United States. Yeah. So uh, so now they have uh, one point two three million total cases, which incredibly is about 30% of the worldwide total number of COVID-19 cases. They're having 24,000 new cases a day. They've had more than 75,000 deaths. Uh, White House projections this week uh, indicate that there could be uh, more than 3,000 deaths a day uh, coming uh, next month. Um, And to put that in perspective, that would be roughly equivalent of the amount of people uh, who died in the 9-11 tragedy uh, dying per Per day, yeah, which is just, which is just shocking, and and then you know sort of to to give it a personal note, uh, Donald Trump's uh, one of his valets at the White House has tested positive to COVID nineteen, and he said he didn't have uh, much to do with this particular staff member. Uh, I think he was a former uh, a military serviceman who was who was working as uh, Donald Trump's valet. Um, and so uh, I don't know exactly what the process is for the president now. I know he's going to be tested daily for COVID-19. I don't know if he's going to volunteer for uh, bleach injection <laughs> I trials. I you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> it might be time for him to put his money where his mouth mm. is. Um, and uh, but, but talking about Trump and his miracle cures, uh, interestingly, one of his dr- miracle drugs has actually caused some problems in Australia. Yep. So his hydroxychloroquine, uh, which is, I think it's an anti-malarial drug uh, that he said is maybe something that could could fix you if you have a COVID-19. People ha- in Australia have taken him at his word and have been tr- importing it themselves uh-huh. and self-administering, uh, which is, is actually quite dangerous to do. And so uh, Australia's border force has urged people not to do that. Like don't, don't, firstly, you shouldn't be buying in any pharmaceutical drugs that you'd haven't been prescribed, but this one in particular, don't do it because it can kill you. Absolutely. These are drugs that are prescribed by doctors and you don't just take them. Don't do not do it because Donald Trump tells you to. And that's a ter- that's don't probably t- one of the worst reasons <laughs> to take a drug. Absolutely. Moving over to the UK, uh, their total cases are 208,000 and they're recording, as you said earlier, you know, 3,000 to 6,000 cases per day. Mm. Um, so far, more than 30,000 people have died from the virus over there and 540 in the past 24 hours and really the only place that has a worse statistics is the United States. So it's just devastating for the UK that they've found themselves in this position. And there's also a little bit of mixed messaging going on over there. On the one hand, you've got the press uh, who are actually being quite positive about lockdown being lifted. And there's front pages that are saying things like, hurrah, lockdown freedom beckons and things like this. But of course, the polls are telling a different story. And many Brits are saying they're actually too afraid to go out. And even if the restrictions were further eased, they would 
maybe not want to leave their houses just yet. So I think um, at a cabinet meeting of Bojo and his top ministers, he stressed that they will be proceeding with absolute maximum caution. So I think some people over there have just got a little bit excited. It's Um, it's strange to contrast it with America because in America you've got the media who are doom and gloom and then you've got the president who's saying, oh, it's maybe not so bad. Uh, Whereas in the UK, it's kind of the opposite. The The, the press press is uh, really calling for the easing of restrictions and saying that you know we're on top of it, but certainly the numbers from the UK don't suggest that at all. They suggest that they've got a, a massive problem still ahead of them uh, and one that um, is, is not going to be solved overnight. That's right. The numbers are absolutely shocking, as they are in Italy still. Yeah, well, we know Italy was one of those countries very early on that was hit hard by the coronavirus. Um, currently, uh, they have 211,000 confirmed cases uh, and uh, 29,958 deaths. So it's nearly 30,000 deaths, which is really quite a lot. Uh, 96,000 people have recovered, and now they're starting to look at easing some of the lockdowns. They're calling it Phase 2, which started uh, at the beginning of May and included you know, opening uh, mainly strategic factories and construction construction sites, which gets people back uh, on the tools. Uh, and then they'll be easing their uh, lockdown measures in gradual steps. On May 18, it's going to be retailers that are allowed to reopen. Uh, and then in June 1, it's going to be bars and restaurants, which we know uh, bars and restaurants are such a big thing for the Italians and was actually part of the reason why they had such a bad spread of the virus in the first place, that they stopped, they wouldn't stop going to bars and restaurants, but they're going to be <laughs> reopened. But schools uh, was unlike Australia, where you yeah. know we, we kept our schools open, um, their, their school have been closed and they will stay closed until September Um, while travel in between the regions uh, is still going to be banned uh, except if you've got some sort of justification for travelling between those regions. Yeah, it's very interesting to see that um, their schools will be closed for such a long time and it it is very interesting to compare how different countries have responded and continue to respond and of course we've got a place like Sweden which is the only European country not to impose any kind of lockdowns and that has now not worked well for them as well. They now have 24,000 cases. They've got almost 3,000 deaths and the death rate is six times that of their nearest neighbours, so um, places like Finland and what have you, and it's also double the death rate of America. And they must be now looking and saying, well, this idea of herd immunity has not worked. Well, exactly. You talk about, we've talked on this podcast before about uh, places being sort of guinea pigs. And we talked about Western Australia being a guinea pig, Northern Territory being a guinea pig. Sweden has been a guinea pig really of, of what not to do and what that can look like. In, amongst Scandinavian countries, they've got the worst figures for coronavirus by far, the death toll by far. And the death rate, I think, is the really concerning thing. Yes. The fact that it's been, you know, double the death rate of America. And, and it's not like we're talking about a third world economy here. We're talking about Sweden. Sweden, one of the most developed countries on the planet, uh, and the very I- progressive, very progressive, and the idea that they thought that um, you know herd immunity was the solution. Well, we're seeing, I think, a reminder here that even though um, you know the overwhelming evidence is that uh, most people are going to be okay, um, the reality is when a lot of people get this virus, there's going to be a percentage who are not okay and who are going to die. And if that's you know sort of three point four percent or higher, you know you're talking about a lot of people, and you know, and that's the that's the conversation that will also happen within Australia as we move through uh, SCOMO's three steps. Um, Because what you're basically doing in a situation where there's no vaccine, you 
are taking a risk. It might be a small risk, but there's definitely still a risk that if you're going back into the office, if you're if they open up, um, you know, sporting sporting events, a community sport, going to the footy, stuff like yeah. that, it's not without risk, and you always have to remember that and uh, and take precautions yourself. Yeah, that's right. And one place that is deciding to take the risk and reopen is Disneyland in Shanghai. And they're going to open on Monday, which is May the 11th, but they'll only be opening at 30% capacity. So only only, only 24,000 people will be allowed into the park. (laughs) Talking about guinea pigs, you know, I think Disney is using the Shanghai Disneyland as a bit of a guinea pig for their wider theme park network. Like they closed, uh, they started closing the Asian theme parks uh, in early January. and this one was closed in early January. And then um, by mid-March, the, all of the theme parks, Disney theme parks around the world have been closed. And, and so this one will reopen. To give you an idea of how much the Disney, Disney, the conglomerate, has lost in that time. So they've also closed, you know, sort of film and TV production mm. as well, right? And so in total, Disney has lost about, say, about $1.4 billion US because of the coronavirus. Uh, $1 billion of that loss in revenue has come from closed theme parks. Wow. Which is is staggering. So the quicker they get those theme parks open again, the happier the Disney executives and the shareholders will be. So Shanghai is going to be the guinea pig. And you think about the 30% capacity, and and I guess that means that on a roller coaster ride, there is, you know, one person in one carriage and then there's a gap. And yep. another person in another carriage, That's and, right. and every ride is socially distanced. <laughs> and some and some <laughs> of the rides are going to remain closed. The ones where you're going to be too close too to close. other people, yeah. and other things that are kind of a hallmark of uh, Disneyland's around the world. Things like you know getting your photo with uh, Mickey Mouse, stuff like that is not mm. going to be happening. They're not going to have the nightly parades, uh, so it will look a little bit different. But uh, we'll see, I guess, uh, how many how many thousands of people flock to uh, an amusement park when you know you, you take a chance. Of, uh, of catching a virus like this. That's right. Well, while Disney obviously are attempting to recover, we know that the cruise industry is absolutely on its knees and really the epicentre for virus outbreaks in many countries around the world. But um, Jimmy Kimmel... He's offered some assistance here. Yeah, US talk show host Jimmy Kimmel, who's doing his show from his house like uh, so many other talk show hosts in America are doing at the moment. He thought he'd give this beleaguered industry a little bit of help and come up with a, a new marketing campaign for cruise ships. Let's take a listen. There's never been a better time to take the family on a carnival cruise. Our all-inclusive vacation package features four-star dining at a dozen restaurants, full open bars day or night, entertainment for the kids and the kid in you. And when corona or any number of viruses inevitably strike, a respectful burial at sea. Carnival, it's the way you would have wanted to go. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's enough to get me on board a cruise ship. I got to be honest, Nat. I just uh, you have to go on and have a look at the video because seeing it in conjunction with the video is actually quite funny. Yeah, and, and it's, it's also it's, it's it's also terrifying because it's because the the reality is even though this is a joke from Jimmy Kimmel, the cruise lines yeah. are advertising cruises. They're offering crazy discounts to get people back onto cruise ships, uh, and I'm going to pass. Yes, well, I am a cruise fan and have cruised in the past on many cruises but um, I would definitely have to think twice at the moment before uh, getting on board again. Well, thank you so much for your time, Ben, and we hope that's brought you up to date with all the changes over the past week and we hope that you can join us next Friday for Coronavirus Watch where we'll wrap up all the details in this ever-moving feast of COVID-19. See you then.